Thanks for tuning in to the Medivac podcast powered by the Robert Irvine Foundation, whose mission is to support and strengthen the physical and mental well-being of our nation's heroes and their families. They provide them with life-changing opportunities, resources, and support through food, wellness community, and financial support programs. I'm one of your hosts, David Reed. And I'm your other host, Christian Myers. Thank you all for joining us this morning or afternoon or whatever time it is as you're listening to it. Anyways, uh, if you have not already uh, heard parts one and two from Kagan Gill, this is part three. So go back, listen to part one, listen to part two, because you're going to miss some really important information and backstory on to how we ended up uh, to part three today. Uh, Kagan is a former F-18 Super Hornet pilot, a naval fighter pilot who uh, ejected at nearly 700 miles an hour, basically turned his bones to dust. We talked about that. The recovery from within, and uh, now we're leading into part three, where we talk about the aftermath of uh, you know using pharmaceuticals for that that long, that extensive period, and kind of the toll that it's taken on your body. So, welcome and, back. And after Thanks, all yeah. that work, yeah. you got back to flight status. Yeah, a long process of healing, surgery. Mm. Um, it was a journey and an epic battle to get my medical back. Even I oh, mean, yeah. the whole process of getting all those waivers, I had just a, a massive amount of support of people working behind the scenes to make it all happen, as well as all the work I put in to physically get back to where, I, you know, where oh, I was yeah. capable of, of flying again and feeling good and ended up going back through flight training at VFA 106. Uh, I had been out of the aircraft at, for two years at that point. Hmm. So obviously I had to get, get back in and brush off all the dust yeah, that it accrued of not flying for that long. But, uh, that went well. I ended up graduating at the top of my class. I got the top hook award, uh, as well nice. as the river rat award they call, it, which basically <laughs> means you're fun to hang out with, uh, when you're not flying. <laughs> and I was more proud of that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> river rat. It's a cool the guy. Rat. Cool guy award. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so I ended up getting picked up by VFA 136 Nighthawks out of Lemoore, California. Nice. And so I was back to a fleet squadron uh, flying F-18 Echo Super Hornets again. So it was sort of a dream come true. I'd gotten back on the horse, back through all that training and was back at it and, and felt like this is the happy ending. You yeah. Know? What did they say about the $89 million plane that went down? <laughs> Yeah, so I had to go through a FENAB, which is a Field Naval Aviator Evaluation Board, which is a very in-depth investigation over months and months and months, mm -hmm. looking at everything they could possibly discover, not only about the aircraft and the data recorder and, and the, the mishap itself, but also my personal life, everything behind what had happened, mm -hmm. what was I eating, everything that was going on around the event. Um, Check your browser history. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> deep dive and who yeah. knows what all they look into, yeah, off the, right. you know, off the records. But uh, I ended up going through that whole process and I ended up getting what's called an alpha two rating out of that mm -hmm. whole uh, from the Admiral, which basically means I got the opportunity to go back and fly mm, uh, Super yeah. Hornets again, unrestricted. Mm -hmm. uh, just had to go through retraining, which I needed anyways because I had been out of the jet for two years by the time I was physically capable. Sure. Um, and even that, that's a feat too. I mean, a lot of people don't mm -hmm. realize the the extensive process that is a flying class one physical, right? 
Oh man. I mean, just to get it initially is yeah, a nightmare for normal know? people off the street, right. yet alone what, what you had gone through and the additional scrutiny that they're going to put you under oh, after yeah. having I a mean, class A mishap. I had that. to go through all sorts of psyche valves, oh, neuropsych yeah. evaluations, you name it. I had to go through it mm. and fortunately it went well and I was mm. able to come back pretty almost unbelievably they they had done a sort of a battery of uh testing immediately after the crash within a maybe three or four months mm-hmm. and you know a lot of my scores were not great sure. did not look like what you would expect from somebody in that position in the military yeah I'm sure. but after a year and a half of recovery and doing all the things i started doing on my own largely you know, eating good, exercising a lot, being with friends, mm-hmm. being outside. I came back and I took that test and crushed it. And yeah. they're like, the people that were doing the test were just almost stunned that somebody <laughs> could go from where I was with that kind of head injury and damage mm-hmm. to where I had gotten. So, mm-hmm. you know, incredibly blessed. Uh, and, and there was a lot of hard work and discipline on my end, but I feel there was a lot of support that went into that, getting yes. me back to it for sure. sure. Um, but, uh, as far as the aircraft went, you know, nobody ever sent me a bill, uh, they, <laughs> thankfully <laughs> naval training, they, oh, they allocate for things like that. There, there are mishaps that happen every year. Uh, oftentimes nobody hears about them in the news, but it's, it's, uh, a more regular occurrence than most people might think. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Like little class B mishaps or class C mishaps. Yeah. People yeah. <laughs> end up getting a bill for, <laughs> uh, my buddy, Justin, I actually went through flight school with and went through OCS with, uh, him and I were on the same mishap. They every year they send out like this poster mm-hmm. of all the different aircraft. They've got a little picture of the aircraft and what kind of mishap and the crew. And if anybody was injured, killed. Yeah. And they put it on a poster and you put it on all the bathrooms and like, you know, you walk into a urinal in the Navy and you see these mishap posters. <laughs> yeah. And my friend Justin and I were both on the same mishap poster in the bathroom. So <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> little Navy famous yeah, <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But, uh, and what happened with him? Uh, he, you know, he, uh, he was an E2 Hawkeye pilot. And he had, uh, was out on deployment and landed on the deck at night in that big, these big uh, dual prop aircraft with the the back of it's full of electronics and these dudes uh, working on the electronics. And as he touched down, you know, these are like 1960s era airframes. Oh, yeah. And one of the throttles just went to max throttle, even though he'd pulled the throttles back to idle. Oh, no. And so this thing in the dark just starts spinning like a top on the deck oh. of this bobbing aircraft carrier and is just spinning towards the edge. Oh, and man. luckily he pulls like the kill switch for it right before they go off the edge. And when you pull the kill switch, it makes, you know, all the all the power dies. So everything in that tube just goes black. (laughs) So the dudes in the back of this thing are just spinning around on the deck of the carrier, no windows, just in the dark, just not having any idea probably for the better Uh, what was going on. uh, And he said that thing came to a halt. And one of the dudes from the back pops the heads up is like, everything okay up here? (laughs) (laughs) Like screaming to themselves. So he gets a mishap for a malfunction in the plane? So it's uh, a mishap doesn't necessarily mean like it's a hit against the the pilot or air crew, but it's it's, uh, some sort of damage has happened to the aircraft. And I think back then, uh, if it was more than a million dollars worth of damage to the aircraft, it became a class A mishap, which mine was obviously well into the class A range. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe his was a class say as well for the damage to the and it was no fault of his own you know yeah he he did everything right um but uh yeah no as far as a hit on me yeah there was still like yeah i had to deal with the thought that i crashed an aircraft um and and it wasn't 
just on me, there was a lot of things that led up to it mm-hmm. and, and, and things that, uh, you know, we can deep dive into and all the, the aviation community did. And out of it, at least you pull a lot of nuggets of what can we maybe do better in mm-hmm. the future. Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you learn from that? I mean, personally, uh, going nose low at the airspeed I did was at the altitude I was at was not the greatest decision. Mm-hmm. And had I been more consciously aware of where I was at with the aircraft, I wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also a lot of takeaways that I think uh, going forward, just realizing how quickly that G limiter function of the aircraft can compound and, and put you in a really bad situation if you're not expecting it. For sure. Um, so I think at least out of everything, it made the community more aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like day one at the rag now, they put up my mishap and talk about it. Plus there's also this whole laundry list of lessons learned, uh, through the SAR community mm-hmm. and the search yeah. and rescue effort all involved and things that could have been different and in the frequency issues. And there was a has rep about that whole thing. So anytime, and as you guys know, in the military, if there's something that goes wrong, we at least do a pretty good job of trying to reconstruct it and learn from it and pass that on Absolutely. and, yeah, really uh, and good learn job. those lessons, you know, these lessons that, are largely learned in blood. Help you fight yeah, war better. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, well, for sure. At least learn how to fix our mistakes and avoid yeah. them from happening again in the future. I for mean, sure. Did, did you get a checklist item input after uh, this about checking the codes um, for that? Uh, no, but they did eventually equipment? change the software so you could yeah. see the codes oh, of yeah. the bombs on the wings and interact with it in the cockpit. Whereas yeah. before it was behind a panel. Mm-hmm. And when you do a hot switch into the aircraft, which I had done, mm-hmm. You don't get access to that. I think it's the nine right panel in front of the right engine because you leave that engine running in uh, a hot switch scenario. So it's something you're not checking. So it's not something that's nearly as obvious back then, but they've, they've done improvements to the software. Yeah. Um, I really hope that they integrate the ground proximity warning uh, into the G bucket uh system mm-hmm. a lot like most of the modern fighters if they detect that there's a pending collision of any kind it basically gives you full authority of the controls and then some okay. so that you can pull out of a near disastrous situation with yeah. as much as the maximum g and sometimes even more yeah it'll let you it's kind of like it's better to overstress the aircraft than to you know, no. go into the earth, yeah, sea fit or um, something, <laughs> yeah, exactly. slide into a mountain um, or building or something. Yeah. But again, there's so many budget constraints and so many, so many things that need fixing and attention, and there's only so much money to do so, yeah, unfortunately. So, yeah. um, limitations, at right? least, uh, at least the pilots <laughs> can be better trained on it. Yeah. And, and, and I certainly learned some lessons from it myself. Yeah, almost yeah. written in blood, right? Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you, so you're back to flying and, Still training, training environment goes as planned or yeah, training environment, what's the timeline look training like environment, uh, at the, at the FRS, uh, fleet replace fleet replacement squadron, which is at VFA one Oh six. That took, uh, just under a year, mm-hmm. about eight months, I think, uh, is the time I went through and, and then I got picked up, uh, by a fleet squadron, VFA one thirty six. moved out to Lemoore, California and started flying there. At this point, I'd been back flying for about a year and a half Mm. and really kind of getting back in the swing of things, back used to the pace of fleet life where you're, Mm. you know, people may think as a fighter pilot, your primary responsibility is learning tactics and flying the jet, but there's a whole 
world of collateral duties and ground jobs and online training. And, <laughs> and you guys know how the military likes to pile oh, yeah. as much as they can and squeeze as much out of you as they can. So you're working eight tower ground job. And, and then on the side, you kind of got to fit in all that tactical learning and studying and preparation in your own time. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fast paced, high stress environment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but for me, I, I was just really ecstatic to be back and be back doing what I had trained to do and finally, flying again and getting mm. back on the horse that kind of bucked me off so hard and brutally. Yeah. And, uh, we, my squadron had gone down to Tyndall air force base, which is in Florida. And we were doing what's called in which is a weapons exercise, uh, largely run by the air force, but the Navy has its own little component that goes down there to do it. And we were down there. My squadron was down there with the F-22 squadron from the Hawaiian Raptors, hmm. uh, which is probably got to be like the coolest flying gig ever, <laughs> flying Raptors out of Oahu, like yeah. not too bad. Oh going shredding North Shore on the weekends <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then going fly Raptors on the beautiful. weekdays. Yeah. Um, Spent a long time flying helicopters, like on rim pack exercise around Hawaii. Oh, You'd get a couple days off and just tootle around the island, like low passes, 100 feet, 200 feet. Dude, that's going to be beautiful. Oh, it's great flying around Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Epic out there. But we're down there and I got the opportunity to go out and shoot a live nine mic sidewinder, which is a heat seeking missile at a drone. So nice. I was stoked to go out and do that and went to the brief. Uh, it was a little bit chaotic. It was our first day down on this debt. You're in a new area. You're training with the Air Force, which is like, you know, we play baseball, they play cricket kind of mm -hmm. thing. Like yeah. everything mm -hmm. has its own name and different language. And, and, uh, anyways, we make it through the brief. We kind of rush to find where our gear is, get out to the flight. I'm troubleshooting the jet, just trying to get the engine started and get the missile, uh, ready to rock. And, you know, they've already done the radio calls for the event and I'm kind of behind timeline, just the way everything unfolded, the way our brief went, we, we were a little behind. So just sort of this additional stress going into a flight that didn't really need to be there for a yeah. flight that really shouldn't have been that stressful, but, yeah. uh, standard, just kind of roll with it. I, my card loaded, but it didn't channelize all the radio frequencies. So I'm sitting there like trying to punch in radio frequencies and already <laughs> the flight leads taxiing out in front of me. So I get everything I together. I can and taxi out behind him. We take off, fly out to the area I do the missile shoot, fire the missile uh, at this drone, and then afterwards went over to one of the working areas, this airspace out over the ocean there, mm -hmm. uh, and joined up with another, you know, 20 some year old dude flying a Raptor. And we got to do some DACT or dissimilar air combat training. So, two two young guys out there fighting fighter jets against each other. And it was incredible. And I remember, <laughs> you know, more than fighting the jet, I'm just enjoying watching this freaking Raptor and the directional thrust and the way this thing can move like a, an alien spacecraft almost, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and came back, uh, as we're flying back, he, he took the lead and, and he's like, you know, the Raptor can really make even the most average pilots look really good. And I'm like, Oh man, <laughs> what a, what a humble thing for this F-22 Raptor pilot. And like, as that thought was going through my mind, he keys over the tack for he's like, but I don't have that problem. I was like, ah, <laughs> there, there it is. is. <laughs> we proceeded is. to come back for like the world's slowest break. Like I had the thing in idle, almost had to put the speed brakes out to stay in position. Cause I guess the Raptor guys had gotten in trouble for coming back a little bit too much heat in the, break uh, yeah. <laughs> uh so they had uh, tethered them down to 300 knot breaks which is 
very slow mm-hmm. uh, for, for those aircraft. Anyways, came back, was watching my tapes in the debrief and realized that there were these huge chunks that I could not recall from the missile shoot, which was really mm-hmm. concerning. Interesting. Like, um, I should probably remember that. And, and I was used to having a pretty consistent, solid memory and being able to recall things well. Uh, so that was concerning. Uh, I kind of went home thinking, well, I just need to sleep it off. Yeah. You know, maybe it was the chaos of the brief and being behind at the beginning and whatever. I just kind of made up excuses in my mind of why it wasn't anything serious. Fog went back of to war. the hotel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fog of the Tindall War. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and went back to the hotel, tried to get some sleep. Had really bad insomnia that night. And I came back. Fortunately, the next day I was just on SDO, squadron duty officer, you know, manning the radio and the phone, coordinating the flight schedule, making coffee, you know, pretty low intensity stuff. Mm -hmm. And throughout the day, I just kept feeling worse and worse. And my memory was having issues. I was feeling really high anxiety and I'm sitting, you know, in a room with a computer answering a phone. It was not stressful at all. And again, I just kind of tried to shake it off, make it through the day. And I got back to my hotel room that night. I remember taking off my boots and sitting on the end of the bed in the hotel room. And I felt just this crazy vertigo, which I had never gotten that before. And I just felt like my head was tumbling backwards, even though I was sitting still. It felt like the room was bobbing and floating underneath me and moving. Hmm. And I tried to get some sleep. Again, the insomnia just was getting worse in the in the anxiety was creeping up really bad where I was just, my heart was racing. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to the point where it's like, all right, I got to tell somebody about this. Cause I'm supposed to fly first thing in the morning. So I called the squadron safety officer, uh, call sign squeezer. Who's actually the same guy I had my very first flight in the F 18 with back when he was <laughs> an F 18 instructor at VFA one Oh six. Um, <clears throat> and I didn't realize that I was about to have, uh, you know, a phone call that was going to end my flying career with the same guy that I kind of started my F-18 flying career mm-hmm. with. But mm-hmm. I called Squeezer as the squadron safety officer, and I told him what was going on. And kind of the first thought that came to my mind is maybe this is decompression sickness. There had been a a pretty widespread issue in the F-18 community with our pressurization systems malfunctioning. Mm-hmm. And the ECS is what it's called, the Environmental Control System, uh, causing random fluctuations of the cabin pressure up at altitude. Mm. Uh, and even on deck, there was a, a case with a growler, which is basically a super hornet with electronic attack pods on it. It was sitting on deck and had one of these malfunctions. Mm-hmm. And it, it had varied in pressure so much that it, I think it permanently disabled the guy in the back and the other guy is still functional, but caused severe brain injuries to these Mm -hmm. guys from those. Basically, if you're a scuba diver and I'm sure you guys understand this, but you come up just for the audience. If you come up from depth too quickly, scuba diving, the nitrogen in your blood can expand into these little bubbles. If you get that in your joints, it's painful. They call it the bends or type one decompression sickness. Mm -hmm. If you get those little bubbles in your brain, it can cause all sorts of neurological dysfunction up to the point of like having a stroke or equivalent of stroke aneurysm and even death. You know, you get a little bubble that forms in your brain in the wrong place and it can be really bad. So initial thought was, okay, I've got type two decompression sickness um, from my flight the other day. It's just getting worse. Maybe there's this trap bubble. So they took me to Mayport dive base and they put me in a hyperbaric chamber Uh, That night I spent several hours in this tube getting squeezed and the pressure 
and the oxygen seemed to help me a little bit as I showed up. Uh, you know, I describe myself as kind of like a zombie, like mm. very flat personality, dealing with the vertigo and the and the hypervigilance that's kind of formed. Which was still going. Yeah, yeah, going pretty bad. And, and, and my mind was just racing with crazy thoughts. Like not only the pressure of, oh, man, I'm not going to maybe fly again because of this. Yeah. yeah. The last thing you want to do is go to medical after, you know, yeah, of and course. jeopardize your career, especially after all the waivers I had. But obviously something was seriously wrong. They put me in the chamber overnight while I was in there started to kind of come out of, it. I felt a little bit better by the time I got out. Then the next morning I was kind of like, okay, I've got a little of my sense of humor back. The anxieties died down. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was it. Maybe I'm doing better. And the young flight doc that was working at the place, uh, he's like, you know, maybe it was decompression sickness. We can't know for sure. But why don't you come back after you get an arrest this morning and we'll talk about it tomorrow, see how you're doing. Mm-hmm. So my commanding officer drives me back to the hotel, again, try to sleep, not really sleeping still. Uh, before I know it, it's like 9 a.m. I ride in with the skipper uh, and I end up going back to the to the dive base and seeing that dock. And he's like, yeah, man, I, I don't know what's going on with you, but when you get back to Lemoore, uh, after this detachment, I really need you to go in and see medical. And I'm like, oh, damn fuck. it. <laughs> so anyways, we finish up debt. I, I don't fly anymore on debt and uh, end up back in Lemoore and I go see the flight doc. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. before I knew it, you know, they're like, okay, you have all these sort of seem like mood things going on. You know, you're, you're not quite feeling yourself, your mood's off. Let's send you to uh, psych for an eval with the psychologist. Um, go in and before I know it, you know, they have this delayed onset PTSD diagnosis. They start throwing a lot of conventional therapies at me with, uh, CBT and CPT and, and, and sort of all these conventional clinical practices to try. Doesn't, it's not, it's not really doing much for me at all. Sure. And, and in fact, it just feels like I'm just getting more aggravated as, I'm getting worse and these things aren't getting better. What's the timeline looking like? um, This probably took a couple more months, maybe Mm -hmm. three, four months of going through these different therapies, seeing the counselor. Before I know it, they have me seeing a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, And the psychiatrist starts toying around with different meds. And at this point, I'm like, I don't want to be, you know, I'd been through all the withdrawals and the battle with all that cornucopia crap they had me on before i was very reluctant to take more medications but they kind of painted it as the only option of course like hey you got this ptsd thing here's the here's the treatment for it and meanwhile by the way i've got granted i have this extremely complex medical history if i printed off my medical records it looks like a stack of encyclopedias so there's a lot going on but hindsight being 2020 there's largely this underlying issue of this unresolved brain injury mm. uh, and, and these sort of operator syndrome like symptoms, but the, the bite, they kind of bite off on this PTSD diagnosis and run with it. Yeah. And that became the focus of all the available therapy. And before I know it, more meds, mm. uh, they put me on, I was having night tears and waking up in the middle of the night when I could get to sleep very briefly. So they put me on a medication called mini press which uh, they discovered back in the Vietnam era. It was uh, actually, I think, a blood pressure medication that they were giving vets. And they noticed guys that were having these night tears, their night tears were going away, Hmm. um, even though they were giving it for something completely different. 
but anyways, they put me on that initially. They tried three or four different meds. And then before I knew it, they had me take in Seroquel yeah. or Quetiapine yeah. for insomnia. At low doses, uh, I think they started me at like 10 milligrams, something really low. It's supposed to help you get some sleep. And that was my biggest thing is I was just not sleeping. Mm-hmm. And as the insomnia worsened, like... Everything went from, you know, the sort of on edge, hypervigilance sort of edginess that you get with sleep deprivation to, uh, I mean, I started feeling like I was in the Truman show, like everybody was watching me and listening in on me and the radio station was tuned to me. And mm. like everybody was, was sort of these fake actors interacting with me. Um, like paranoia or yeah. And the hypervigilance and that sort of started to snowball into more paranoia. Yeah. And, uh, again, they just kind of kept upping the dose of that Seroquel, yeah. which is an antipsychotic medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and that treatment continued and they would up the dose and this sort of vicious cycle started to occur, which is you get the dose. It would knock me out for a while. It seemed to work. Mm-hmm. And then before I knew it, you know, those underlying issues were getting exacerbated and it was sort of, uh, to mm. use the analogy, it's like this tree is dying. The tree of me and my life and well-being is shriveling away and you can see the apples getting sick on the branches, but instead of watering the tree and providing it nutrients and sunlight, they just come out and paint the apples red. Mm. And that's kind of what those medications were. They were yeah, kind of masking. Yeah. And with that happening longer and longer going on, it became more and more clear that I'm likely not going to get back in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. I remember going in to see my XO uh, blue was his call sign. Uh, and I sat down with him at his desk in his office, closed the door. And I was like, Hey, here's kind of what's going on. I don't know that I'm going to be able to continue flying. And, mm-hmm. and one of his first questions was, you know, are you seeing, are you seeing a psychiatrist? And I kind of told him what was going on with that. And he's like, Oh man, they already dug their talons into you. Yeah. yeah. And at the time I was thinking talons, what do you mean? They're trying to help me. Nope. But he knew um, what was going on and he kind of knew what was going to unfold from this. There's no Um, way you're making it back after that. um, In that time, they sent me down to Stanford. Uh, I was doing trips, uh, or I guess up to North to Stanford university. They, they had me at the hospital there to address some of the issues I was having with nerve damage in my left leg and foot that was causing pain Mm -hmm. with an attempt to try to address some of this chronic pain I'm dealing with. That's interrupting my sleep. I ended up doing some nerve blocks and uh, a number of surgical procedures there while I'm kind of dealing with the PTSD stuff in the psych department. And after basically a year, uh, it was kind of like, okay, it's time for a medical board. Mm. Um, which, you know, after fighting to get back in, it's not what I wanted to have happen, but it made the most sense at the time. And I'm just continuing to get worse and worse. And so who broke that news to you that you weren't going to be flying again? It was your, um, nobody ever came out and said, Hey, you're done flying. It just became readily apparent without the writing was on the wall. I saw the psych meds happening. Once you get that diagnosis under your belt. And I kind of knew, and as that continued on and on and and, yeah. the, and it wasn't working and getting worse, it was just kind of like I knew nobody had to come in and be like, hey, buddy, yeah, here's the deal. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that we've learned so much about post-traumatic stress over the years. We're still learning. Sure. Traumatic brain injury is a different one. That is like the new version of PTS, right? And they're so intertwined yeah. and Big related. Big Venn diagram, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. 
They are so intertwined. And like just having the experience of talking to just countless veterans at this time sounds to me like an issue of a, a traumatic brain injury, right? Oh, yeah. You're putting force on the body. It's putting force back on that brain. Why is no one thinking of this in the hospital? Well, I think I think people that can get outside the traditional conventional medical system are mm-hmm. guys like uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Lewis, Dr. Mark Gordon mm-hmm. has a, some yeah. great episodes on Rogan yeah. uh, talking about this stuff. But their their kind of viewpoint is even. I think Dr. Gordon even says things like it's it's there's not even really a PTS or PTSD. It, it's it's brain injury related. It's It's these physiological causes that are causing those symptoms, but the PTS and all that are largely symptoms of these underlying physiological causes. So Mm. if we can treat those underlying physiology of it all, and what's going on in your body and your brain, we can address the issue. Unfortunately, the conventional standpoint and it being seeped in funding through the pharmaceutical industry and all the shenanigans going Mm -hmm. on there. And unfortunately that results in a lot of physicians that are well-intended that are reading these medical journals that are misleading and and misguiding and mistraining them all the way through school to tell you the uh, truth, conditioning them essentially into this box that is not reality. Hmm. Uh -uh. I think that any, any professional that comes up to you and still has the D on the end of PTS is probably a little outdated in their reading. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it's not a disorder. It is trauma to the brain. And traumatic brain injury, these micro-concussions, mm. how, you know, the trauma of your childhood and how you process this trauma. Oh, yeah. that That is a significant factor. Yeah, there's so much more going on. It's so complex from birth. Mm-hmm. There's all these things that add up and add up and add up. And then you go through traumas you might experience in the military or in your life. Uh, you know, you're in a car accident, you're in a jet ejection, you're in, uh, in the military community, like you guys witnessing these just day to day extremes of Mm -hmm. what is human existence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it takes these little tolls on you Yeah, and it affects you compounding, uh, not only your body, but your mind and your, your fricking soul. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those things all compound and, and to really start to address these issues, you've got to, you've got to treat the human as the whole of all those things, all those aspects comprehensively. And unfortunately for me and for most people in the conventional system, it's okay. This is a, medical diagnosis of PTS or PTSD back then, as it was called. And we need to address that. And mm-hmm. here's the protocol for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's the meds yeah. that all the medical journals are talking about. What's yeah, the latest SSRIs. and greatest coming out? Yeah. What's the pharmaceutical industry got pushing today? And let's do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's the route I went. And at this point, and at this point, mm-hmm. do you, so you're getting ready for your med board. You're at Stanford. Do you think that's what it is that it's post-traumatic stress or do you have an inkling that it's more physiological I mean, I, I really didn't know. Okay. I, I know that the, the people that were the so-called professionals and experts were telling me that. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I have no reason not to believe you at this point. I'm a little reluctant to listen to mainstream medicine after everything and starting to see the cracks in that system from my previous experiences. But I was kind of like, okay, this is what they're saying. And I don't know any better. Mm. But I think it, at that point, I even had a little bit of a gut feeling like, okay, there's something else going on here that yeah. is not being addressed. Then if that, and if you guys know what you're talking about, why is this getting worse with the treatments you're doing? Why are the things yeah. that you're doing just making me worse and feel crappier? And now you're kind of 
just looking at me like I'm an idiot, yeah. you know, like yeah. what's, what's wrong with me? Why? Um, and that's incredibly frustrating in itself. Um, just trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Exactly. You guys are telling me this, but it doesn't seem that that's the case. What yes. is it then? And I think there's a lot of people <laughs> even right now, and it, it breaks my heart that we're, they're still going through this, but there's a lot of veterans, uh, first responders alike who are, who have that same exact thought process right now. These people are the most resilient people in the world, right? Military members and first responders, uh, arguably the most resilient people in the world. They can endure and see and undergo and partake in some of the most horrendous parts of humanity in in war or you know stateside, whatever it is. They they can see these things and go through them and endure and process it because they're resilient. And I think what a lot of people are starting to find is that it's physiological trauma that is presenting itself or being called PTS, right? So we have all these providers who are focused on, let's treat PTS because it's a psychological symptom. It's a psychological mm-hmm. disorder. It's a, it's a problem of, of the mind. When in reality, most of us are so resilient that we can, we can see these things and not let them truly affect us or partake in them and not, not let them truly affect and guide our lives. But at the same time, we can't. And I think that's what a lot of people are starting to realize is that it's physiological. Like, Maybe it's it's it actually is TBI that's forcing me to have my mood shifts and my 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 depressive episodes or my anxiety is getting kicked up. It's not necessarily due to what I saw or what I endured, but because of the actual trauma and physical trauma to my brain that's causing these these signs and symptoms now. So I think there's a, there's probably arguably quite a few people who would resonate with exactly what you're saying. That yeah, I think I have these same these same symptoms or these you know, something of a similar understanding, but I don't think it's PTS. Like I don't think it's physio or uh, I don't think it's in my head. I think it's you know physiological. Okay. I think it's physical. What, what needs to, to shift. Right. And in, in, in just the experience of all these difficult emotions you might have to deal with mm. can cause there's, there's research showing can cause damage to the brain at yeah. a physiological level, almost the way a TBI does mm-hmm. being under chronic stress and, and these adverse uncertain environments for a career for years and and all the extreme training and and the things that people undergo in the military so commonly uh and those can have a toll on you the way just getting punched in the face can you know Mm -hmm. yeah um and so yeah it's 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 amazing what's out there and and the things that are coming about and being researched but so much of it has yet to enter that sort of conventional medicine world uh for a number of reasons uh, that are very frustrating yes. very frustrating we're not looking out for the greater good mm-hmm. and we're looking at how to keep a customer and yeah. we've talked about this on the business episodes. model and the corporation's business it interests is. are overruling yeah how do we actually help people and every new therapy that comes out is met with this abrasive attitude, mm. this will never work. This right. is ludicrous. This is just some and hippie nonsense. What are you talking yeah. about? Hippie nonsense. Yeah, fla- yeah, exactly. Flashing lights for your eyes? How is this going to help? <sighs> like, you'd be surprised. Yeah. It's so frustrating. And, and you know, there's, there's things that we've been instilled in us since birth. Oh, mm. we've been so conditioned. Um, that, <laughs> that everything's bad for you. You can't sit in the sun too long. You can, oh, you can get skin gosh. cancer. You know, we're, we're humans. We're animals. We're designed to be in the sun. You the know? sun is so good for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you know, there's, there's some yeah, extremes. Don't like fry yourself. But, right. Yeah. There's extremes to every end. There's yeah, a balance yeah. to all things. And you know, if you're a hippie, you're probably not securing a job. You might be happy, but you're never going to be, you know, the millionaire that you 
your your business egotistical maniac is going to be. But at the same time, there's a balance to all things. Yeah, absolutely. And finding that middle ground is is so important. Um, and we should be all on the same page about it. We shouldn't be shooting things down. Oh, yeah, be, yeah. Recep- be receptive to the things that are being posited right now, especially like I, n- I know we're, we're eking this way and we're going to talk about it here shortly, but psychedelics, right? There's been such a, such a condition oh, yeah. for, especially people our age. If you're, if you're in your twenties to forties, like everything that you've heard about psychedelics has been based on the war on drugs, which was just a straight up lie. Like, Another failure. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. propaganda. It, it was what it was. Propaganda. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a failure and it was a disservice to, to people because, like if we had legalized the stuff and allowed studies to be taking place over the last 50 years, instead of just outright schedule wanting it and calling it <laughs> non-medical oh, man. and the, the progress that we would so have made on, and that's, it's just one example and of a million examples. Still, to this day, you get people, and, Oh, you just do drugs. You know I mean? I think we had a comment the other day. Yeah. There's like, like these bunch guys of, just do drugs. Bunch right? of drug addicts. Like, what are you talking? <laughs> Did you oh, listen to what we yeah. said? <laughs> we yeah. only use it in medicinal settings. <laughs> like, well, what about, very... what about the psych drugs they're giving us and antidepressants well, and the painkillers? Those ones seem to be okay by the mainstream. Drinking their right? Pepsi <laughs> and eating their hot Cheetos. Oh, yeah. yeah, drinking Jack Daniels, complaining yeah. uh, about something that the Earth has provided. It's absurdity. It is absurdity. Um, Silly to me. Yeah, oh, we've, I, we've digressed. I, <laughs> <laughs> gotta get it out there. Yeah. It. yeah. Uh, so you're on all Damn these, the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> all these medications that are just not doing well for you, and just masking the underlying issues. Absolutely, exacerbating. Uh, yeah, and. Yeah, and all, all the while, everything underneath is just bubbling and bubbling mm. worse. And now it's starting to boil over. And that hypervigilance and mild paranoia is turning into me thinking I'm being hunted by government spies. I, was af- I started to get afraid to go near windows. I thought my food and water was being poisoned by the government. I stopped eating and drinking. Uh, meanwhile, I had just had a newborn son. Mm. My wife is taking care of our newborn and now a grown adult uh, with hands and the ability to drive a vehicle. Uh, and she's trying to keep me under control as I'm going into now these psychoses mm. that are being exacerbated by the medication I'm on and, 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 and just frankly, just not being treated properly, all yeah. these underlying things. Um, so anyways, I start doing the medical board process, which, uh, is the bureaucratic equivalent of Indiana Jones temple of doom. The whole process seemed to be riddled with booby traps for people to fall through and be derailed by. Yeah. Um, and granted there are people that you know, they're just trying to get out of the military. They're faking things. And there's there's definitely that. Mm-hmm. But the process in place is so disorganized and broken. And, and if you miss one single appointment, you yeah. have to start over. Again. One piece of paperwork doesn't get filled out correctly. Yeah. Back to and, the beginning. Uh, and appointments in my case, three uh, months from now, if you... You know what I mean? It is. And and fortunately I had, again, I had my command support. I had all the medical documentation backing everything up. I had the support of the medical community on base. I had the support of my wife. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have all those things, there would have been no way and chance I would have made it through any of it. Mm -hmm. But even with all that, uh, I mean, I show up to meet my PEBLO, the physical evaluation board liaison officer, the person that's supposed to be your guide through the process and your go-to point of contact. And that position in Lemoore had been left vacant for like six plus months. 
And the new person they had gotten on, I won't mention this individual's name, but basically wanted a cushy job with a chair and a paycheck, but didn't care to actually put in the work. Not to mention she inherited a shit show, no fault of her own. I show up for my first appointment with her and, you know, we set this ahead of time so I could go in and meet her. Everything was planned. I go in, she invites me in while she's chit-chatting on the phone with her daughter who's at college and they're chit-chatting about her new roommate and all the gossip at college. And her office is just covered. Every horizontal surface is covered in stacks of paperwork and folders. It's a disaster. There's nowhere to even sit in the room. So I stand there for the first 20 minutes with my arms crossed as she has this conversation in front of me. The most, one of the most unprofessional things yeah. I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And then we find Finally, get talking, and it's clear she has no idea what she's doing. That none of the stuff that she is supposed to have initiated has been done. So, in my state, I'm in and out of these psychoses, which uh, you know I'm largely bearing down and not being open about and, and masking to the best of my abilities. Yeah, but I'm I'm at least able to go on the. Uh, there's a military disability made easy website and you can, I highly, if you have to go through a med board for whatever reason, get on there and, and get all the knowledge you can on your behalf. Cause you're going to yeah. need it. Uh, and fortunately I had that information. I, I learned everything I possibly could about the process so that I could be better prepared. I eventually got an appointment with, uh, the legal representation to start one of the important documents for it. It's this dude in Washington state, uh, you know, over the phone, I get like 10 minutes over the phone with this guy, and he gets like 3,000 cases a year that he's trying to juggle. Jeez. So the, the whole process seemed just designed to fail yeah. the individual. And I know there's people that go through the process in certain communities, and I think uh, probably the communities you guys come through or come from see these kind of cases more often, and maybe because of that can do a better job of the med board process. And I, I'm just guessing. I, I've heard mixed re- I mean, results I, on that, too. I had a missing leg when I went through. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, did that help? a broken like, back, and this yeah. leg was barely hanging on. And I, I went in there, and, and you know, as an operator, you're hard-headed. Right. Oh, yeah. And so, of course, when they asked me the questions, can you pick up a ruck and can you ruck? I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting there God in a wheelchair, right. wheelchair with both legs, right. like just blown oh, yeah, off and hanging off. And this guy is asking me if I could, if I could successfully ruck. And I did. I said, yes. Yeah. Well, give, give me a prosthetic. I can do it. Dude, you're like the Black Knight from freaking Monty Python. <laughs> Holy Grail, yeah. dude. Like, you can chop my arms and leg off. I'm still going to yeah. get shit yeah. done if you want. But, but, but I need some freaking I suffered. <laughs> I suffered dearly for, for that one mistake of saying, mm-hmm. yes, I could rock. Um, dude, they dude. cut my percentage to 80% right off the bat. and Well, 40% in the military. It was a 40% to so starting. And, you know, yet... You know, someone goes and their sergeant made a pass at them and they get diagnosed with 100% disability, Mm -hmm. total and permanent for post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. and never have seen combat. And it's just such a broken system. Mm. And it's so frustrating on everyone's part. Oh, yeah. Um, So I feel your pain uh, immensely. Um, You lost a leg? Not that pain. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> it's just the netboard pain. Unfortunately, <laughs> not the leg pain. Uh, every uh, leg, every bone in your body was pretty uh, much broken, brother. <clears throat> but it was, yeah, it was a disaster. And I'm not of the mental ability at this point to really deal with it all on my own. And I was so sure. fortunate to have all the support behind me. But mm-hmm. even with that, and even with being, you know, on the officer side of the house, which I think 
helps a little bit, you know, I couldn't imagine being like a brand new E3, E4 going into that system with no voice, with the command, not on your side with legitimate issues, but no one's standing up for you and Mm -hmm. and you can't make it through like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard now of guys that decorated war heroes, 16 plus years of service, purple hearts, multiple, you know, brass, uh, you know, just incredible awards of, of valor and just incredible military histories and honorable. And they go through this process yeah. and they're now out in the freaking street somewhere living under a bridge because the process is so broken. Yeah. And anyways, battled through this. Uh, I remember my wife at this point is driving me to my appointments at the VA because I can't even drive a, a car anymore. I'm so mm. out of it. We're driving by the road signs on the car and, in the car and I'm looking out the window from the passenger side and the road signs are decoding into secret messages for me. I think at this point that my wife is the real Carrie Matheson from Homeland. (laughs) So like the secret government agent that's been sent to save me. And I start thinking that she's, she's actually the real Carrie Matheson. Like that whole show is based off of my wife in my mind. That's what I'm thinking. Wow. Uh, And so like, my mind is all over the place. Yeah. I'm going into these appointments at the VA. Uh, most One of the most notable ones is I go in to see the neurologist for assessment for all the nerve damage I have. That I have all these EMGs that have proven that there's legitimate severed nerves and this damage. I have all this documentation of all these things. And I go in to see the guy and he looks at me for about 20 seconds. Maybe he takes out this thing that looks like a little spiky pizza cutter. He rolls it on my arms and he just kind of goes, you don't have TBI. You don't have nerve damage. (laughs) You're fine. And by the way, he wouldn't let my wife come into the office for that visit, which most of the other docs at least left my wife come in is kind of my rep because I was so out of it. Almost guardian at that point. She was. And, And I come out of the appointment. I'm like, he says, I don't have any nerve damage. And my wife is just like, what? the hell is going on in this place Mm -hmm. um and it was i mean like you said just just getting the va appointments is a a disaster i show up with my medical records on the specific disc that's supposed to be just for this purpose Mm. and they're like oh this doesn't format with our computer like we can't look at your medical records and it was just that time and time again and fortunately i i just by luck one of the docs there um he was assessing me for all my muscular uh, dysfunction, but he was able to tie all of my nerve damage to the muscular dysfunction that he could mm. deal with. And he like, thanks to that dude, he was able to do this roundabout process to get a lot of my things accounted for that. Otherwise we're going to just get disregarded by the neurology department. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's um, the thing about going through the VA process like that is it- combined with the military disability and like medical evaluation board, right? right? If you're getting kicked out for a med board or if you're going through your VA appointments, the the disincentive there or the, the, the major issue is that it's directly tied with financial incentives, right? They're choosing whether or not they want to take on and if the government's agreeing to give you money for the rest of your life, right? right. Or to pay for your medical bills for, for these conditions. It's right. in their best incentive and their, you know, their prerogative to say no to as much as possible because it saves them money at the end of the day. Yeah. Like again, it, it comes down to to a financial drive behind the decisions that they're making most of the time. And we have such a we have such a wealthy government and we <laughs> spend so much on so much in our military. And if we yeah. can't afford to 
take care of the people yeah. and the resultant things that occur because of their service, mm-hmm. then we don't, we can't afford to go to war anymore. Yeah. Buy one less F-35. Um, <laughs> exactly. Just buy uh, one less. <laughs> there's such an imbalance yeah. between taking care of the equipment and the people we have yeah. and the resultant things that come because of their service yeah. and you broke it, you putting for money it. into new, yeah. pro- new programs and developing new contracts mm-hmm. with all these defense contractors. And there needs to be a balance. We need to continue to evolve our forces, mm-hmm. but you know, with the hand of industry on the state the scale, that military industrial complex, yeah. you know, it, it, there's a massive imbalance there. We there also, is. for the first time in history, the soldier, the troop has a voice. Yeah. As an Thanks individual. to guys like you and podcasts like this is and, so powerful. And media in general and just the dissemination of information is too hard to contain, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. It's um, awesome. But you've, <laughs> you've, you've heard how Vietnam veterans were treated, mm-hmm. you know, and this, this is just a awful. reoccurring thing. So now we do take a stand for it, you know, and it's unacceptable. And getting that message out there and showcasing to the world that this is this is how you're chewed up and spit out after you're done with your service is just not acceptable. So now you're seeing no. the 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 recruitment numbers hurt, you know, and and all of these residual side effects of that mm-hmm. as well. And and yeah, it's 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 a disaster. Um, but fortunately, again, had the support of all these people, my wife, and and got through these the VA process, and then everything goes to a review. And that came back and was basically, like, yep, you're you're a candidate for getting out of the military. And then you go through a whole nother process. Uh, and that process through the DOD side, because one form was filled out incorrectly. It only mm-hmm. had one of it had my one referred condition of PTSD, delayed or delayed onset PTSD, and they failed to fill in all the other injuries I had incurred in the military because of that, when it went to the board, uh, the stickler at the board was like, Oh, well, we see all these records. We're not going to look at them. They only have this thing on the paper. So they only rated me for the one thing. And that came back and they're like, okay, we're going to give you this, you know, partial retirement thing. But Mm. it was like, are you kidding me? So I had to go through this whole appeals process, Mm -hmm. start over, get in my, (laughs) in my, uh, summer white uniform, fly out to Washington DC and stand in front of this board, to see my case and had the dynamic and the individuals on that board been even slightly different, they could have just as easily been like, sorry, see you later. And I would have just been another one of those dudes, you know, mm-hmm. freaking mm-hmm. broken and unable to take care of himself with no yeah. medical care, probably homeless yeah. and destroyed. And fortunately one guy on that board, he was a Marine who had clearly done some real things in his career. The other two was one was like a medical officer and the other was uh uh, another pilot actually. And the pilots kind of questioned me like, Oh, well, are you just going to get out and go to the airlines? I'm like, dude, this guy's clearly not met read what's going on with me. I'm not <laughs> yeah. going, I'm not getting the FAA medical anytime soon. Dude, I can't even this drive. is not my conspiracy <laughs> to get out and get to the airlines. That's the last thing I want to yeah. do is, is drive a bus after what I was doing in the military. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was kind of that mentality in the medical officers, like, kind of giving me flack and this other pilot's kind of giving me hell. And and then finally the Marines like, listen, you served your country, you were injured in doing so. And now the government, we're going to take care of you. Mm, Wow. Congratulations. You're being medically retired. And so again, that the, if those members were just slightly different, that dude wasn't in the room. They could have just been like, see you later. Gatekeepers. Um, 
fucking gatekeepers. So now I'm, I, you know, this process that in the, in the civilian world would have taken like two weeks to a month to yeah. maybe do has taken now over a year and a half mm-hmm. of dragging on and all these weights and weights and more process. But I finally get retired, move back to Northern Michigan with my family. Um, and still just getting that same treatment at the VA yeah. going to see the psychology or the psychiatrist there. They're just focusing on the PTS and the answer is more and more Seroquel or quetiapine. And at this point I was on 300 milligrams of uh, quetiapine a night and the doc thought because it seemed to be losing its effectiveness, I wasn't sleeping very well again. All right, let's up the dose now to 450 milligrams of it a night, which from is 10. Yeah, this is crawled from 10. And now 450 milligrams of this medication is like a freaking heroic dose of this med. <laughs> and the result was within a couple days, my wife heard me rustling around by myself in one of our rooms in our house. She came in. For some reason, I had shaved off most of my hair on my head in chunks. Uh-huh. I had shaved off my eyebrows, what facial hair I had. I was completely naked, except I had tied a black plastic garbage bag around my neck like a cape. And I was about to go outside and fight crime like freaking Batman in the northern Michigan Captain winter underpants. weather. Captain no underpants. <laughs> no underpants. <laughs> Sans undies. Holy shit. And so my wife was obviously very startled. Uh, she calls the VA. The VA is like, hey, we're hanging up and we're calling the police. There will be a squad car showing up soon. Another wrong answer. Oh, I yeah. know. Send the cops. And the freaking cop shows but up. But I just, I got to pause here. Yeah. And, and just like, these people talk to countless veterans a year. That's it's, all they talk to. And, so and we are sitting here knowing that this is a terrible idea already. Oh, yeah. Why is it they don't care? They've checked out, they've washed up, and they've moved. Like, what here's, is the problem? It's here's the what I have do. kind of summed it up as, as getting the opportunity to talk to a lot of people that have been in positions to be very high up in the VA system and be on some of these policy decisions and see the inner workings at the highest levels of the VA. And, and, Biggest thing that they've shown me is that at the very top of that system, regardless if we have the most well-intended, well-meaning medical staff and volunteers and people in the positions at the VA, no matter how altruistic and, and awesome those people are, at the end of the day, the policy decisions are made by the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. because they have so much influence over Bingo. the VA system, and it is a massive cash cow for them. And at the end of the day, that's why it's broken. And until that freaking tentacle can be ripped out of the system, which I don't know if it can, and how to even go about it, it's, it's such a bureaucracy. It's impossible. Um, yeah. That it's system impossible. is going to continue to fail veterans. Um, I don't think there's a way to unbind those two nope. things. I it mean, doesn't it's, appear. It's it, driven entirely by the you know <laughs> economical drive from the pharmaceutical and, and, and companies. And I don't, I don't think that there's people that you know are masterminding in some back room at the pharmaceutical companies. I think they're just their primary job as a corporation is to you know produce like, increase the bottom line. And, and at Make the end of the day, money. that is what their decisions are based off, and they're yeah. going to use what's in their control to do so. And you know, sometimes maybe that means fudging it here and there and pushing this and maybe this little ethical decision that doesn't yeah. go the way it should because Cutting at the end corners. of the day, that's what their legal obligation is. Yeah. And so I'm not here to point fingers and say that they're just a bunch of evil people. No, no. And maybe there are some people like that. And I, 
you know, well, there's two directions to go with this, right? So you can, <clears throat> on one hand, you can say, well, we remove all profit from pharmaceutical development and manufacturing or whatever. So they lose that incentive. Well, now you also lose the incentive to develop new pharmaceutical drugs, right? right? Mm-hmm. Here in the US, we're the only real pharmaceutical companies in the world who develop new drugs because we put the investment behind it, right? All the other countries in the world, they wait for one of our ours to, to develop it. They snag it off the shelf. They reverse engineer it. And guess what? They've had to do no work to now have access to the same drug. Well, if you have that incentive that exists, you end up with the system we have today. So which, which way do we go with it? Like there's, those are the, you really, your only two options to make it nonprofit. So people lose the incentive and no one really cares that much if they're not making money at the same time. Hooray, we're helping humanity, but I'm broke. Slippery slope. Yeah, it's so there's, indeed. There's is, two ways is, to go. There's, there's a balance yeah. to all things, right? We talk yeah. about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. You can't you can't take away big pharma because no. look how many there's, lives there's it's, good. There's it's no been doubt. Yeah. I'm I'm hugely thankful for Western medicine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean the Same trauma here. surgeries, the abilities that they have to bring somebody back from what in the past would have been a certain death. It's tried and true. Yeah. Is incredible. Ha- has there been corners cut on multiple facets? Absolutely. For sure. And that's with any system and any vast system as well. Um, so I think that's a good disclaimer. <laughs> Big <Yes>. pharma. <laughs> <laughs> brought, brought to you by. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And, and, yeah. and I, I think that's really important to note is that we, we do bitch about it all the time, but there is some great things into that. And you're right. It's just all about the bottom line. Um, they're not medical doctors. No. that are making the decision there. They're the accountants and the chief and it's, financial It's officer. such a behemoth of a system. Yeah. And, and, and I think change can come from that end slowly through generational changes, um, sure. which is going to take a long time. But the biggest fight I think right now is coming from the ground up from conversations like this mm-hmm. from the veterans who've been through all this and are legitimate subject matter experts on these things because we've been through it with firsthand experience. And now because of modern technology and podcasting, we have the ability to reach out and share this information in a way that hasn't been done that the Vietnam era guys didn't have, Mm -hmm. you know, all the hell that they went through. They couldn't share that and yeah. they were so discouraged from it. But now we are sharing that and it's getting out there and it's getting to an audience. And I think that's, that's where a lot of the change is going to be mm-hmm. coming from. Um, so I'm optimistic. I don't know how quick this is going to happen. It's not going to be overnight, but it's generational. Least, You're uh, absolutely right about um, I think that. It is. But uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm freaking riding in the car. Well, about to go to the, the hospital with my wife in the psychosis. Uh, she gets me dressed in some socially acceptable clothing. So did the, did the cops end up coming? Sorry, I know we oh, completely yeah. so, cut at a very important time. So the cops, cops the, the squad car shows out. This sort of dazed and confused looking guy gets out like, what am I doing here? And my wife is like, no way in hell is this guy taking my husband yeah. to the hospital in his current state. We're not going to put him in handcuffs. We're not going to put him in the back of a squad car. He's coming with me. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of scrambling around the house to get things together. Um, she, she's an ER nurse. So she's like, Hey, here's, what's going to happen. You need to take the shoelaces out of your shoes because they're going to take them from you there anyways. So Mm -hmm. as she's running around for whatever reason, I tie one of these into a lasso and I put it around our little boy's neck. Who's playing with me. She walks in to see me. I had tied essentially a noose around a little boy's neck. And so she's like, Oh my God. Um, 
so just the trauma that she's had to deal with yeah. dealing with me, um, you know, it's no wonder that in that world, divorce is so common and it just breaks families apart dealing yeah. with this stuff, but she compartmentalized it. She continued to get me loaded up. My mom just happened to be visiting. Mm -hmm. So she drops to the back with our son and we start rushing to the emergency room. It's about a mile or an hour away. And on that drive, I'm looking into the rear view mirror and I'm in such an intense psychosis at this point that there's this freaking. I'm imagining this nuclear explosion has gone off behind us and our house is like freaking ground zero as this mushroom cloud is expanding towards us. There's cars and boats and animals and trees and all sorts of debris flying through the air from this blast wave that's coming up from behind us. We're swerving through the roads and I'm basically imagining that I can like see into the future and like warning my wife, like, be careful in three turns, there's going to be a deer that's running out. And so wow. I'm just like, I'm going to freaking wow, a different world at and this point in my life. You're head. seeing this physically in front of your in front of your face. Oh, I mean, as real as day, this is, I'm not only seeing it, I'm hearing it. I'm feeling it. This is my reality. My, <laughs> my head is so just interesting perspective point that I'm just in an alternative reality. Yeah. And, and it kind of gives us a little bit more insight on some of what our homeless are oh, kind of yeah. experiencing. Yeah. They're in a different universe. It's a different universe that is very, very real to them. Oh yeah. And, uh, eventually get me to the hospital. Uh, we pull up out front and for whatever reason, I decided it's a good idea to take a leak in one of the little house plants that's in the lobby of the hospital. <laughs> the security guard comes out and this dude is freaking out about ready to send me to freaking jail again. Yeah. And thankfully I have my wife and my mom there to support me. And they're like, listen, here's the situation. And he's kind of reluctant, like, oh, I've seen worse. Fortunately, they talk him down and get me to the check-in at the hospital, uh, while they're checking me in, I'm like, Hey, I need to go to the bathroom. I go into a little private bathroom for whatever reason, while I'm in there, I get completely naked <laughs> I'm in the freaking garbage bag in, I don't know what I had with garbage bags, but I'm in yeah. the garbage bag in the bathroom as they check in on me naked. And they're like, you got to put your clothes on. They get me back into, uh, this, basically this big plexiglass room. That is the holding room for psych patients at the mm. ER. And there I have this out of body experience. I don't know if I died or what, but I had just this completely out of body left my body and was just traveling through time and space, seeing prehistory through the first, you know, molecule through the development of everything that is life. And as we know it now and the planets and the universe and then into the future and the collapse of everything. And I am just on this wild psychosis adventure in my head. Yeah. Uh, and, and it ends with me basically very alone in this little capsule tumbling out into deep space, completely cut off from everybody. Uh, my mom came in to check in me. She said when she came in, I was like crawling around on the floor. I was feeding crumbs to a monster. I thought that lived behind the wall in the room. Uh, I had eventually gotten up into the chair and sat down and I had the remote for the TV that was just on static, you know, just the black and white fuzz going. And I'm clicking the remote furiously with this intense grin on my face. She said, I didn't even look or sound like myself. And I looked up at her with this eerie grin and I was just like, do you see that? Do you see that? Do you see that? My voice was really staccato and like weirdly pitched. Hmm. It was like there was this something possessing me that wasn't me. And I remembered as I was clicking the TV, I was able to 
as I clicked back, I was able to go back in time and like see the dinosaurs. And then as I clicked forward on the TV, I was able to go into the future and see like this apocalyptic doom where Jeff Bezos had taken over the world and everybody had bought their stuff and our materialism was just crushing us. And we were in our own garbage and the air had become so toxic that we had all just been driven completely mad. Uh, and there was a news reporter on the TV in the future, like thousands of years giving this report with this fake smile. And I remember a lot of it very vividly. I mean, it just sounds uh, like normal. (laughs) So it's like, it's the real, it's CNN. Uh, are, sounds accurate. Are we on the verge of insanity or straight genius here? Yeah. That's are you just unfiltered at this point? Yeah, like you just seeing know, reality man. for what I, it is. I have some different theories on that. Uh, but uh, anyways, wow. I spent a couple nights at the ER there. They found out I was a veteran. So there was no, there was nowhere else for me to go. So they're like, okay, we can send you to Battle Creek, Michigan to the mm. VA inpatient psych facility there. And so we're like, okay, we didn't know anything about it really, but it was basically the only option. Um, they loaded me up in an ambulance, drove me down there. And, uh, I came to, in what I thought was a prison cell, this dark room. Uh, and I was dressed in what I thought was just a diaper and mm-hmm. it was bloody. And I thought my parts had been cut off and it was really gory and creepy and, I remember somebody came to the, 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 the door and opened the little window and peered in on me and slammed it shut. Hmm. I blacked back out. I came to a little while later and realized I was just in this room at the VA hospital inpatient psych facility. As I kind of came to, I was able to start walking as I walked out the room into this very brightly lit tile hallway. uh, I remember stepping and everything sounded like I was like freaking T-Rex, like everything vibrated. I felt massive. Like I was could touch the ceiling. But as I walked down the hall into the common area, I like returned back to sort of feeling normal and being a bit lucid for the first time in days. And there, you know, is full of all these other veterans, a lot of like Vietnam era guys, um, you know, dealing with serious issues. One dude would just pace the hallways screaming at himself. Um, other guys were like freaking cookie monster. They were just like bumbling and yelling and Hmm. shuffling around extremely overweight. A lot of the medications are giving people just cause them to be extremely hungry and just overeat. And and some of these guys have been there long term for Mm -hmm. decades, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and, and and the scene that I saw in there was pretty grim. Um, I can imagine you know, a lot of guys dealing with serious issues. There was another SF operative type guy that had been through a lot of shit in his career. And they had basically tried all these medications. And when he, they didn't seem to work, they put him into basically involuntary electroshock therapy. And he was telling me a little bit about that and how awful that was. There was another dude there who had had multiple brain surgeries and lobotomies, and you could see the scars on his head. And he was just completely bonkers, like not there anymore like he was still kind of walking around and he was really into slot machines Hmm. so he mostly took up the whole day at the one computer in the place playing these online slot games Mm -hmm. um but just not there anymore Hmm. um there were other dudes there that through their time as homeless veterans had been in and out of the prison system and they're like the the guys that i sat and talked with they all agreed we'd rather be in regular prison than this va inpatient psych facility the food's better you get to go outside every day there um the treatment's better you have more privacy in this place you're coming out of the lowest point in your life and you are getting malnourished the food is just absolute processed garbage there's Mm -hmm. hardly a fresh fruit or vegetable in sight um it's just all tv dinner 
a few steps below TV dinner, I'd say, you know, uh, there's plenty of like nutter butters and Oreos and chips sure. that will hand out to you, uh, as I'm sure that place, you know, whatever food contract they get, someone's making money off of it, yeah. uh, to give you all this crap. Um, but you are largely confined in this very small area. You're not getting sleep at night because one, there's dudes losing their minds running up and down the hallways. Everything is tile and echoey and loud. So everything just reverberates. You can hear, hear people walking all night long. Mm. The staff members all have these keys that clang and jingle as they walk the hallways. Um, so it's not a good place to sleep. It's not restful. You don't have privacy. You're in a room with other people, uh, sharing bedrooms, sometimes up to six or eight dudes are in a room. Wow. Um, you're not getting food. You get to go outside maybe because they're so understaffed. They're largely volunteer based cause they're so desperate to get people there. Mm. Um, that they can't take you outside. And when you do get to go outside, maybe once or twice a week, they put you in this concrete outdoor area that's fenced in and surrounded by buildings. So it's the most cut off from nature situation. You're not getting exercise. Mm. Uh, the activities you can do are watch TV, uh, or use colors like you're freaking two years old and color with markers and crayons in coloring books. That's the extent of your day, uh, when you're not, you know, so out of it in the psychosis and the go-to treatment is give you drugs and everything is designed to give you more of these drugs. And that is the go-to. And as I'm there, like seeing this, I'm in the lucid moments I have, I'm in here. I'm incredibly frustrated because I'm like, if if you take somebody who's uh, an elite special forces member, an elite member of a military unit, you send them to freaking survival school and you sleep deprive them like this. You deprive them of nutrients. You, d- you can find them. These are all the things you would do to an enemy combatant to yeah. break them, break them of their will. So they will do you what they want. will do, do what they want with you. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what's going on in the freaking VA inpatient psych facility to American veterans. So I became incredibly frustrated. I didn't want to take their shit at this point. I like, I don't want to take your crap. Uh, you know, there's this whole dynamic now that I'm this troublemaker and, and I granted I'm in and out of psychoses, but in the lucid moments I have, I'm collecting like bags of peanuts Mm. and snacks and I'm stashing them in my room. I'm scrounging up warm clothes and multiple layers of the scrubs they give us so that I can, I'm basically planning to escape. (laughs) Uh, and my plan was I'm going to pull the fire alarm in the middle of the night and they're going to set us outside uh, you know, to clear the fire or whatever. And then those of us that want to can run and get yeah. the hell out of here. A lot of the guys are so out of it. They're just going to hurt them back in like sheep, but those of us want it, we can get out of there. Um, so that's my plan middle of the night. And by the way, there's this woman there that works there. I call her Goldie. Cause she had this gold nugget necklace. It was like a big chunk of gold kind of thing on a necklace around her neck. <laughs> and most of the staff there was like kind and compassionate and caring, but this woman was, it was almost like she, I don't know what was up with her. I don't know what abuse she came from in her past, but she, like, I would ask for, Hey, can I have some colors so I can draw? And most of the staff give you this box of crayons and markers and, and oftentimes a blank sheet of paper. So you can actually somewhat draw and be creative. She comes out with one green marker and like one page from a kid's coloring book. And she's like, here you go. I'm like, can I have the whole box? And she's like, no, this all you get. Um, so that was just the start of it. But at night she took it upon herself to make sure every 15 minutes she came into my room and shined a flashlight in my face. So I'm 
the most, the thing I need most at this point is just to get some restful sleep, yeah. some nutrition, some exercise, some fresh air, some sunlight. None of those things are there. And every 15 minutes, this woman's coming into my room and flashing a flashlight in my face to make sure I'm safe. So the sleep deprivation continues to snowball to the point where I am just so furious. I remembered I was, I don't know what stopped me, but I was ready to freaking rip this woman's jugular out of her neck and mm-hmm. destroy her. And I was so close to doing it too. But instead I rushed out into the hallway and I pulled the fire alarm. Apparently somebody had already tried this trick. They called the the base security and these, you know, the police officers show up, they shut down the alarm system. And one of the nurses there that I really trusted and had built a good rapport with his name is Mike. And he's like, Hey man, listen, I got to give you this injection of held all. And we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And I was like, okay. So I just bent over and I'm like, go and stick it in my ass, Mike. And he plunges this syringe of Haldol into my ass cheek and injects me with this stuff. And almost immediately it felt as if freaking insects were underneath all of my skin, trying to chew their way through my skin. All I wanted to do was rip my own skin off and run down the hallway, screaming at the top of my lungs. And if you've ever seen like a, you know, a movie or whatever about mental institutions and you see somebody on a strap down to a leather table screaming uncontrollably, that's probably a dude that just got injected with hell all. Cause that's what it makes you feel like. Now, fortunately, Mike allowed me to pace with him and we could walk up and down the hallways as he kind of went with me. So I didn't get strapped to the freaking table, which by the way, they had one of those tables. Um, and anyways, this lasted, I don't know how long it was, maybe an hour of just wanting to tear my own skin off and run and scream uncontrollably. Um, and if that's not fucking torture, I don't know what is. I mean, the purpose of this is to calm you down. It's because supposed to be an antipsychotic to calm you down. Because you've just tried to escape, right? That's right. why. And, and I'm also refusing oral medications. Mm. So this is their way to get it into me. Yeah. And after an hour of that, I finally am just like exhausted. And I am just so fed up and broken that I'm just like, my will at that point was largely broken. And I can't so, imagine your mental state at this um, point. They start pumping me full of, I don't know what all they were giving me at that point. Tons of different psych meds. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, sure. I'm like drooling on myself, uh, literally drooling on myself out of my mind. And one morning they kind of wake me up out of my little zombie state. And they put me in a room with this woman, this fucking soulless lawyer. She sits me down and she's like, I need you to sign these documents. And she's real nice about it and sweet. And I'm like, I'm not in any mental capacity to make any legal decisions. And they have me signing these forms. And I have no idea what they say. I can't even read at this point. And she goes off. And what that ended up doing was um, legally making me considered mentally defective, which basically strips away my second amendment right uh making it illegal for me to purchase a firearm Mm. um it also puts me on the law enforcement information network so if i'm ever pulled over by the police i get pulled up in their little network as if i had essentially committed a felony yeah um so it's like you had committed a crime when all i was was an american veteran trying to get freaking help and in my darkest deepest point needing help. I was just getting freaking kicked again and again, and it happens all the time and it's still happening right now. There are other people trapped there. Yeah. And, and, and 
It's, it's like being a freaking prisoner of war, a prisoner of war and mental health that's happening in our own freaking country against our own service members. And, and it just is had to feel so, so betrayed. Oh, I was so broken and so drugged up, honestly, mm. that I was just gone. Yeah. Um, my family, you know, they were advocating to get me out of there. And eventually because my wife was an ER nurse, my mom, uh, is a retired physician. My dad had worked in healthcare and they all were like, Hey, we'll take care of him. Mm -hmm. We have a place to bring him. We have people to watch him only because of that. I got out of there sooner. Otherwise, I don't know. I'd probably still be in that place, drugged up and out of my mind. Like so many of those other guys that had been there, who knows how long, how long Just, were you there? Totally? Um, I think in total, I was there a little over a month. Man. Um, but I mean, it was, it was a brutal, um, breaking experience. And I got back home. I got back outside. I was around my son again. Mm. And while I was down there, by the way, my wife had driven down to battle Creek with our little boy she didn't know how long she was going to be there. She had applied for the VA caregiver program that's supposed to support spouses mm -hmm. that have to deal with a, a VA member that's in a situation like that. Yeah. She was denied multiple times for that program. Mm -hmm. So she's having to pay out of pocket. Which they just kanked, by the way. Did they just completely? No they surprise. Yeah, they, they, made, they had made the wicket so impossible. Um, you basically had to be in like a, a comatose state for six months, documented before they'd even... Uh, consider you for the application. Mm -hmm. what the um, fuck? But she applied for that, didn't get it. She's down there um, so that I can see my little boy regularly in the visiting room. Mm. Um, and to do that, they had to get this crappy motel in not the nicest part of the country. Yeah. And it was really inexpensive because that's what they thought they could afford with with what this uncertainty of how long they're going to be there. They show up, my little boy's still learning how to walk and he gets up from the floor in the place and his knees and hands are all black and goopy. And my wife's like, Oh God. So they go to the, the little store there and they get like a mop and a broom and cleaning supplies. And so my wife is having to clean this rundown little shithole motel yeah. to stay in for the month while she's there just so I can see my little boy, but at least getting to see my wife and my little boy on occasion man, that gave me just that little tiny spark of hope to hold sure. on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually they got me out of there against the advice of many of the staff members were like, no, he needs to stay here indefinitely. We got to do all this treatment. He's got to take all these drugs. Mm -hmm. And luckily my family's like, okay, we can, we can take him from here. Yeah. So they get me back home and I don't know how many months it was probably a good six months that I'm still in and out of this pretty intense psychosis. And, and still, even when I'm out of it, I'm not fully there. Um, from the combination of all the drugs I'm on and everything, I'm just a mess. Yeah. And so I'm pretty broken. Um, and, and my future's looking bleak. Like I can barely do the dishes. I'm so like broken a shell of myself. I'm like yelling at my little boy. Who's just coming up to try to give me a hug. I'm just kind of like, get away from me. And I'm just, it was like, I had just gotten out of a fucking hellhole, which I kind of did, but I was just not myself. And my mm -hmm. wife said, when I come home, like, all the hope was gone from my eyes. Whoever the person I was before was just completely gone, which was obviously putting tremendous stress on our relationship. Yeah. We'd started to put into place uh, our divorce plans. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my life was just destroyed. And and what was the answer from the psychiatry department? Hey, you just need more Seroquel, dude. The whole problem is you need, well, they tried some other ones too, but they eventually got me back on Seroquel. They're like, oh, this is the best option according to the latest medical journals, blah, blah, blah. 
And so I'm just broken. I can barely do the dishes. I can hardly read at this point. Uh, one of my old friends, Matt meets up with me and, and, and takes me out mountain biking and he can just see that I'm physically, mentally, and emotionally destroyed. Hmm. And he gives me this book called finding ultra by rich roll, which is mm-hmm. all about, uh, this dude is a corporate lawyer, you know, kind of in a dark place in his life. And he just turns to exercise and good nutrition to mm-hmm. turn his life around and, and break away from that system. And I read that, you know, at this point I can barely freaking read a paragraph, but I kind of start stumbling through it little by little over months. And that, you know, starts to change my, I was already eating fairly well, but I largely went very nutritional base and, mm-hmm. and just was like, okay, I'm not going to have any crap. Uh, I managed to get through in defense of food by Michael Pollan, which is all about, you know, eating real food, yeah. uh, and not too much and, and, and basically eating things that don't have a bunch of crazy ingredients in it. And you go to the freaking grocery store in the United States of America and you pick up what you think is a loaf of bread. And then you read the ingredients and there's like 37 ingredients of things that you cannot pronounce. Yeah. So I became more cognizant of that and my health started to improve sort of from this foundation of drinking clean water, mm. getting fresh air, getting regular exercise, eating real food, um, I started hunting again. So I was out getting, you know, wild game venison and and incorporating that into my diet. And little by little, I started to get a little bit better. And, you know, it was years of struggle, years of almost losing my family. And then I stumbled upon, um, this book called how to change your mind by Michael Pollan. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. And that was where I kind of uncovered this world of psychedelics Mm. and, uh, yeah, I guess this would be a good cliffhanger is uh, <laughs> going from that dark place and sort of broken foundation and, and then everything that transpires miraculously from that place yeah. and, and the whole new world that is out there um, wow. for people. That's in, that's a wild story. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just multiple aspects of that story was wild. Um, and it really is insightful for me to kind of get a glimpse of of what those people on the streets are feeling. Yeah. No kidding. Just how real and how tangible that psychosis is. And yeah, you see those guys, and maybe some of them aren't really veterans, but there is a mental health crisis that's freaking destroying. A majority of homeless individuals are struggling with some sort of mental health. Yeah. yeah. And dealing with something of that magnitude while being homeless at the same time, no oh. access to healthcare or food yeah. or shelter. It's or, a recipe. This is Shutter this Island, disaster. man. Yeah, oh, this, I'm, I'm going to find Goldie and we're going to find the name of this person. <laughs> oh man. She is freaking <laughs> oh, an awful human that is being. Just... Goldie, I hope you have a bad day today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> First and last name. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey man, thanks for sharing your story. I know that is like, just to speak so openly about it is admirable. And Thanks for giving me the opportunity, and, and I, yeah. you know, hopefully this helps other people out there that are maybe going through similar struggles in that mm-hmm. system, in the military or not. I mean, our whole mil- mental health system is awry right now. It is our, our whole health system in it's, general. It's is, in the works. You yeah. know, I, I think that there are so many good people out there working on so many solutions to this. No doubt <laughs> that influx of information and that dissemination that we spoke about. It's going to get out there. You know, yeah. it just takes time. It takes generations, as you said before. Um, but I can't wait to... the charge now, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we had uh, we had uh, three episodes leading up uh, to this next one we're going to have where you talk about kind of going through your recovery and coming out on top. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I know this, this past episode has probably been a Debbie Downer and taken us some to dark spots. And, and, and there's people that have done a lot more in the military than me that have been to way darker places than that, you know, living yeah. on the streets and their struggles. But I brought you there because I want you to listen to this next episode with you guys, which is going to be about how to get the hell out of there. Mm. And this amazing community of VSOs and this community of veterans that are taking care of other veterans and other people, you know, that is just exploding now and bringing hope and real treatment and what's out there that is actually healing people and how to maybe find access to that stuff yourselves, whoever you are, wherever you are in the world. Um, so this is going to be a much more uplifting episode, I think next. <laughs> well, tune Stay in next tuned. week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're going to leave that one on a cliffhanger. Spoiler alert. Three months from now, we'll release it. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, tune Keep in next year. Yeah. Tune in next year. <laughs> to find out. No. Um, yeah. Once again, thanks again. Yeah. Can't wait to see you on thank next you episode. Same. Yeah. That was huge. So yeah. Thank you for opening up today, Kagan. That was yeah, my- my, my heart is heavy share. right now. But we're just yeah. a bunch of vets who do drugs. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> what do we know? <laughs> what do we know? <laughs> this might be a delusion right now. Who knows? <laughs> oh, uh, man. Th- yeah, right? <laughs> this has been the Medivac Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to uh, stay in touch or get a hold of myself and Dave, at Medivac Podcast on Instagram, easiest way to find us, or medevacpodcast.com. Uh, shoot us an email. Shoot us a DM. Ask questions. Make sure to subscribe as well. Yeah, to our YouTube and Spotify. Just go over to Spotify, hit the little follow button, and then leave some ratings. Uh, If you leave less than five stars, I will find you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, thanks. (laughs) See you next week. Bye. See you next week.